Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. All right, let's get on with it, but uh, we welcome your SMS is 34701. Uh, tonight, of course, uh, the President will deliver his uh, State of the Nation address. Uh, it's uh, 20 years of uh, democracy, really the significance of this uh, State of uh, Address in your view. What should be included there? What uh, should the President highlight in your view? Please SMS us 34701. I uh, would like to hear from you, and of course, we'll read your SMSs today. Uh, you can email us midday live at sabc.co.za or tweet us at uh, SAFM Midday Live at uh, Kualapi News. But first, let me tell you that uh, Australia accelerating their run rate now, sitting at uh, 359 for seven. South Africa picking up three wickets uh, since uh, this morning. It's 359 for seven. It's the first innings uh, of Australia. To some more serious business now, all seems on track for the delivery of the State of the Nation address later today by President Jacob Zuma in Parliament. Meanwhile, expectations of what President uh, Jacob Zuma should come in his address are widely varied. Some say he should focus on the creation of jobs and the alleviation of poverty. Others are hoping he will focus on the national health system. While political parties say violent service delivery protests have been the order of the day in various parts of the country as more people feel dissatisfied about the provision of drinking water, sanitation and housing. Our, our parliamentary correspondent is uh, Yanni van Rensberg who is uh, keeping an eye on uh, the events as uh, they unfold uh, at the parliamentary grounds and uh, he joins us on the line. Yanni, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Let's look at the preparations, really final touches I would assume. Absolutely, quite correct. You know, they have been busy with preparations for the past few weeks, you know, um, washing down the buildings, repainting where necessary and yesterday I saw also that they were, you know, checking the manholes in and around the precincts of parliament to check if there's nothing untowards hidden in there and then sealing it off and, um, you know, trimming hedges and stuff like shrubs and all that kind of things. And they've also been bringing up uh, a lovely display uh, along the wall on the inside of the precinct of Parliament on the all the um, sonas since 1994, pictures of that uh, all the way up to last year. So it's very picturesque and I must say the, the weather at the moment is playing along absolutely fine it's quite hot, it's about 26 degrees. There's a slight breeze, but later on they expect the wind to start picking up, so I would suggest that the ladies who arrive here will have to hold on to their hats. I see. All right, but, uh, uh, and then uh, rehearsals by, by those really who will be walking down the red carpet all the way to the parliamentary uh, grounds. Yes, well, the rehearsals have also been going on uh, for the past two nights, you know, the, the military bands and... Um, Speaking of, you know, the, the guests who arrive, the, the interesting thing of this, you know, this is actually one of the very few occasions each year where the three arms of state comes together. You know, it's the executive, which is represented by President uh, Jacob Zuma himself, the deputy president, <coughs> sorry, and cabinet ministers, and then also the judiciary, which is represented by the chief justice and the judge presidents of the de- various provinces, and then also the, le- the legislature, which is representative, uh, represented by the, the members of parliament. So this is one of those occasions where the three arms of, of the state actually comes together. <clears throat> Yanni, you've been at parliament uh, uh, for very many years, and you've covered uh, the state of the nation addresses for very many years and, and opening of parliament. What, what is different this time around, if anything at all? You're actually quite right. You know, I've, I've been in Parliament, <laughs> I, 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 I hate to say this, but I've been in Parliament since 1988, so I've, I've been around the block a couple of times. Um, and every year, you know, they do say this is a very important um, sonar, uh, which obviously is, is, is quite correct every time. But this obviously being uh, 20 years of, of uh, a democratic Parliament, which is also the theme of this year's sonar, it it comes also amid, you know, the the general elections to be held on the 7th of May later this year. So the expectations are just so much higher on what uh, President Zuma is going to say tonight. You know, you know, if you, if you take into account, he actually speaks tonight as President of the Republic of South Africa, not President of the ANC. So he, as far as possible, he should steer away from party political um, campaigning. But obviously, with uh, with the elections only three months away, there's just no way he, he cannot, you know, try and make a point and reassure 
people that uh, he is a man for the job. And, and you know, obviously they people were expecting to say something about the the uh, uh, service delivery protest that's been going on around the country, escalating um, the sluggish growth of the economy, and and, and and things like that. So so you know, whatever he says tonight will be scrutinized with a with a big um, uh, looking glass. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Yanni uh, van Rensberg uh, is uh, our parliamentary correspondent, saying that uh, uh, those who are coming there just hold on to your hats. It will be a bit windy this uh, this evening. Uh, let's uh, stay with this story, but uh, talk some more now and focus on business also uh, having its own wish list of what the president should address uh, and the head of policy at the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry uh, that Saki Pittman wrote says, uh, in fact he joins us on the line and uh, it's good to have you Mr. Rod. Thanks, it's, it's Ruud. Rod, yes. Alright, let's, uh, let's uh, talk about this. What is the uh, business's expectation uh, of the state of the nation? Uh, I think the, the biggest expectation is a show of political world towards um, working towards economic stability. We often talk about investor confidence and the need to build investor confidence. But our point this year is that we first need to look at the stability of the economy before going on towards higher level concerns of investor confidence. Mm. And, and, and how do you do that? How do you look at, uh, the, the, this, at stabilizing the economy or talk about a, a stable economy when our economy is, is this depressed? Sure. Um, I, I think it's important to note that the State of the Nation address is a lead-up to the, uh, the, the national budget announcement early, uh, later this month. So um, we would like to see some kind of um, commitment towards fiscal stability uh, and that the government and the country is moving towards a path where the government is, is ready to, to cut unnecessary expenses. Um, that's on the macro side. On the, on the microeconomic side, we would like to see, uh, you know, um, accept that there is some problems in, in some of the pieces of legislation, especially the investment uh, legislation that's been out for public comment uh, over the past two to three months. And, and when the president uh, makes mention of, of, those th- of those elements that you're talking about, then mm. what do you expect to happen immediately? Because uh, some, some of the things we, I think we need to accept and admit that have, they have been said in parliament and opening of parliament, and they have not necessarily been followed up by action. Yeah, that's a, a good question. Uh, you know, I think the influence uh, of the sonar is often overstated and understated. Um, you know, so it's, I don't think the markets will react, um, immediately to what President Zuma has to say. But it does create an expectation of what's going to happen in the policy field for the next three months. But, you know, really, what's going to happen the rest of the year if, if there's continuation. Um, so I think, you know, your question is, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that say that it's not always followed up. That's true. So we would like commitments. We would like to say, see, this is specifically going to happen. We are going to make changes to this legislation. We're going to make sure that our fiscal spending targets are updated and, and realistic. We're going to make sure that fiscal policy in broad is, is accommodative for business growth. And uh, it's exciting times uh, uh, in South Africa, much as we have a depressed economy uh, that is growing at uh, around about 2% and so on. But uh, it, we, we, we are one of the countries that really are launching a new economy, the infrastructure economy that is happening right now. And, and uh, what do you expect the president then to say insofar as that is concerned? We need foreign direct investment to be able to invest in this uh, infrastructure investment, uh, economy that the president announced in his last uh, State of the Nation address. Absolutely. I mean, South Africa is standing at the crossroads to becoming an, a massively powerful economy and, and, and powerful influencer of African integration and African economic growth. The narrative out there is that, that Africa is going to grow and that South Africa somehow will benefit from this. But actually, you can, you can put it the other way around as well. If Africa's infrastructure network improves, then the whole of Africa will benefit because the transport of goods from um, place of manufacture to harbour will also be cheaper and easier for inland economies. Okay. 
Um, so I think what we are expecting really is just a recognition that business has a very important role to play from uh, conceptualization to financing to um, managing the assets and that um, you know we want we want a debate we want to hear what's going on we want plans on how we can cooperate we thank you very much uh, Pitman Rood who is a South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry Head of Policy Ibrahim Fakir a political analyst let's uh, talk to you right now uh, welcome to the show what do you expect of this uh, really is is the president going to be looking ahead to his uh, second term and, and, and really talking much about what he will be doing in the second term or will he spend a bit of time really uh, looking back at what uh, the NC government has achieved over the past 20 years. <laughs> if I were a Sangoma, I'd be able to tell you what he's going <laughs> to look at, but I'm afraid I'm not. So we're going to have to wait to see what he actually says. Uh, but, I mean, look, the, the speech comes uh, before an election, sure. literally. Uh, so that colors the perspective that's in there. And in doing so, of course, he will want to talk about the successes of his government, both uh, of his administration, but also of the <clears throat> administrations that went before, uh, that were left to him. Uh, so, of course, we want to claim all of the good things which are done by uh, ANC governments. No doubt that will form a part of his speech. But inevitably, he'll have to talk about where the country wants to go because that's the state of the nation, right? The state of the nation is an appraisal of where we are, what we've done, and where we want to go. What's the map for the future? And so it does three signal things. First, it tells citizens about what governments like programs going to be. Secondly, it kind of signals the business and everyone else <clears throat> where the opportunities might lie. And thirdly, uh, to foreign investors, what kind of outlook they could be looking at and what kind of opportunities might exist for them. But we should just be cautious. I mean, I've been listening to a little bit of what the guy from from the Chamber of Industry has been saying. Um, foreign direct investment is necessary. It's absolutely vital. But there's no doubt that equally important is local investment. And if you look at the pattern uh, over the last little while, Actually, you've got a private sector which is effectively on a, on a domestic investment strike. I mean, they're sitting on a, on a stockpile of 560 billion. Mm. Uh, none of, very little of which has been reinvested into either job creation, uh, research and development, product expansion, market development. So, you know, there's areas in which that money could have been invested. And I can appreciate why they do need the savings, but to that extent, all right, and and uh, we'll be crossing uh, uh, Ms. Fakir to uh, the Speaker of Parliament. Sepiso Makwetla is in Parliament right now. We'll be talking, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to to listen in. But in the meantime, what are the critical challenges really facing uh, President Jacob Zuma this afternoon as he addresses the nation? Well, there's several challenges which 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 face both the government of President Zuma and citizens in South Africa as a whole. I mean, the first and most obvious, which I think you'll have to talk about unavoidably, is the spate of protest which we've seen been increasing over the last little while. Uh, that is unavoidable. You'll have to touch on that. But I'm afraid that, you know, if to the extent that he, was, he might, and he did last year, is that they consistently appear to get the message wrong. Uh, they think that if we upscale service delivery, if we tinker with some of the legislation, if we say that we're going to put in place corruption measures, sure. people will suddenly be happy. Unfortunately, it takes two different things. One is that the message isn't always just about services. It's about other things, too. Secondly, okay. you've, got, you've got to lead by behavior, not just by saying that we'll put in these policies and legislation. All right. All right. Uh, Ibrahim Fakir, I'm going to ask you to, to stay on the line for me, please, because uh, the Speaker of Parliament has to, has to go. You, you, I'm sure you'll understand it's his day today also. Uh, let's, uh, we'll come back to you uh, shortly. Tsepiso uh, Makwetla, you're standing by with the Speaker of uh, uh, the Parliament in Cape Town. Hello. Yeah, and uh, we, we, we must apologize to the speaker for keeping him waiting. And as you say, it is his day, President Jacob Zuma today, delivering his uh, uh, sixth State of the Nation address. And the Speaker of Parliament, Mr. Max Sisulu, joining us to talk to us about this. A very warm welcome to you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak thank, to us. Thank, thank you very much. 
this is um, quite a, a, an interesting time just in terms of the state of the nation address and I'd say perhaps uh, by order of significance whichever way you would like to put it it's the first time that there's a station, state of nation address in which former President Nelson Mandela is not with us present as in, uh, with us in this world and it's also one that is ahead of the election so it means it would be the last for this session of uh, this administration Thank you very much, Episo. That's correct. The, the other element is that it's the 20th anniversary of our democracy. So the 20th anniversary of our democracy uh, is the first State of the Nation address where our president, former President Matiba is not going to be around. And um, certainly uh, our um, thoughts are with him. He is gone, but will not be forgotten. But the most important thing about the State of the Nation address is... <coughs> is that it certainly is before the elections and President Zuma will be giving the state of the health of the nation uh, what has happened what is likely to happen he'll be charting the way forward about the kinds of things that uh, he would like to see happening and for us in parliament we'll be um, clearly um, listening very carefully because we have to play an oversight role over government uh, to make sure that the promises that are made are promises that are going to be kept and, not going, uh, and are, uh, are kept. Mm. We also have um, uh, an important personality that is uh, visiting Parliament, the State of the Nation Address, and uh, she is a, a person who is 102 years old, and she is uh, Mrs. Uh, Kotane. Um, the wife of former uh, Secretary General of the Communist Party, Moses Kotan, who died many years ago. So she'll be visiting us, and uh, I'm sure President Zuma would like to pay a, a tribute to her. So that's uh, where we are. And the State of the Nation address also brings in um, lots of uh, interesting um, people to Parliament. There will be a group of people, youngsters, were actually born on the, on the 27th of April 1994. These are real born frees. And there will be the guards of honor, there will be the usual uh, people who, who come to parliament. And we are um, um, thinking that it is going to be a very lively affair and, and um, an important affair for all of us. Mr. Speaker, you talk about the dignitaries that are going to be here this year, the interesting people who are going to be here. Is there any particular reason that uh, former President Nelson Mandela, uh, former President, uh, pardon me, Tabon Begin, former President F.W. de Clark have said they will not attend this session? Well, the former presidents uh, um, de Clark and um, Tabon Begin were invited. Um, we haven't received a response from them. We don't know why they, were, uh, they are not um, coming. But clearly we don't expect them to come every time, every state of the nation address. There are times when they are available and willing to attend, and there are times when they are unable to attend for any number of reasons. Okay. You, you said that it will be interesting for us just in terms of hearing the President's uh, address to the people about what promises made and uh, what action is then taken and what promises are kept. Just in terms of Parliament's oversight role, do you believe that we've lived up to that mandate in, in the past couple of years in terms of the tenures of the, uh, the presidency of the ANC, the democratic order, the new democratic dispensation of South Africa these 20 years? Well, there are three arms of state. Uh, one is the judiciary. Um, um, which has done very well in the country. Uh, the other is Parliament, which I believe is, is doing all that it can and doing also very well. The other one is the executive. And these three arms of states have been working um, very well together. We play an oversight role uh, over government, and that's what Parliament has been doing. There are areas of agreements or disagreements, but the most important thing is we hold government accountable mm -hmm. and we open space for ordinary citizens to be able to come to Parliament and have their view uh, 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 and have their say. We believe that Parliament is truly a Parliament of the people and must represent the hopes and aspirations of the people, which is why we as Parliament open our doors and listen to people. Mm. We also have programs where we take Parliament to the people, not just you know, allowing people to come to Parliament, which is their right, but we also go and listen to the people. Mm. So these are clearly um, tables in Parliament and we follow up on action taken by the executive to see that 
they indeed um, follow up on the promises that they Spe- did. Speaking of action by the executive in, in relation to uh, Parliament's role, we, we've had in the past couple of months, there's been maybe in the, in the last two years, where Parliament, the rules of Parliament, there's been a call perhaps for review, uh, and you yourself have said, well, these opportunities present themselves when people even go as far as going to court to challenge these uh, issues they bring to light the fact that parliament must evolve well sadly um, we uh, as parliament accept the fact that uh, rules are not forever they change with, with, with the times and uh, we have to um, keep a, a, um, a close look at the rules we will be, uh, we will be reviewing the rules and uh, the rules committee is looking at the rules and rules amendment. And some of the rules are going to incorporate the judgments that have been made in the constitutional court and other courts about how parliament should function. We now have a um, in parliament situation where individual members of parliament can introduce bills. In the past it was only the executive that uh, had the right to introduce bills. Now ordinary members of parliament are able to do that and that's in part because members of parliament insisted that they have their right and they took the matter to court and the judgment was yes individual members of parliament can uh, introduce bills just in, per- in terms of your personal role in parliament your 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 assessment just looking back how have you found your tenure are, are, are there highlights in terms of challenges or successes that you would want to point to um, yes, when I uh, became speaker, I followed um, <coughs> in the footsteps of uh, three women. I was the first male um, speaker of the Nasal Assembly. I followed in the footsteps of Dr. Freni Chinwala, um, who will be attending today's session. Um, Balagan Berten, who is a, a deputy pre- a former deputy president, and Gwen Masangu. And um, those uh, were wonderful um, speakers, and I followed their footsteps. What was new um, was that um, there was much more legislation. In the past, the legislation was about undoing past apartheid legislation. And uh, when I came in, part of the task was actually to bring in new legislation that's going to move the country forward not just undoing un- 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 the, 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 the past, but also making sure that the future is the kind of future that we all want. So, yes, Parliament has played a role in terms of introducing new things and legislation and making it possible for people to input into the decision-making processes of government. Mr. Speaker, we thank you so much for your time and wish you all the best today. That is the Speaker of Parliament, Maxis, who brings the time to exactly 12.30. It's now back to Bungigwala and Middellar. Spot on 12.30 indeed. Thanks, Sapiso. We'll be coming back to you. Uh, that's late, uh, much later in the day today for the State of the Nation Address. And, uh, of course, shortly we'll be going back to Ibrahim Fakil, who is a, pol- a political analyst, really, to uh, talk about what uh, this Speaker of Parliament, Max Sulis, just said, but also look at uh, other challenges uh, that uh, we expect the President to address when he makes that uh, address uh, this uh, evening. For now, it's uh, time for the news headlines. Afternoon to Sir Utsilisaku. Thanks, Bong. In the headlines, Parliament is a hive of activity ahead of President Jacob Zuma's State of the Nation address this evening. The Economic Freedom Fighters War Council says it's relieved that the provisional sequestration of its leader, Julius Malema, will not prevent him from standing for public office. And Kenyan scientist Paula Kahumbu says elephants and rhino are being killed at unprecedented levels in Africa. She says the future of elephants and rhino in Africa is uncertain. Back to Bongi. Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. Shadow Trailer, good afternoon to you. Are you going to Parliament this afternoon? You've been warned to make sure that your heads have a lace that goes under your chin because it will be a bit windy there. I wish I had an invitation. <laughs> I would, but you work I for SAFM. <laughs> well, it's good to see Teti, though. You know, she, she's looking good, and, and we, we've been threatening to have a drink but you know we're so busy working okay. <laughs> but let me tell you what's going on um, last year 1 billion people in 207 countries rose and danced to demand an end to violence against women and girls this year the campaign has been escalated and 
asking women and men to rise, release, dance, and demand justice. Two young ladies have responded to this call. One of them is household name Rosie Motene, and we'll be chatting to her, and Nikki Gates, who is inspired to dance for justice. So you stay tuned for that. Thank you very much, Shadow. We'll indeed be staying tuned for that. And uh, shortly we'll be talking to Natalie Gimanos about uh, cricket. South Africa needs a wicket quickly. But for now, uh, Ibrahim Fakir, let me come back to you. Thanks for holding uh, it's, uh, an extended hold uh, that was. But uh, l- let's go back to, to what uh, uh, the, the Speaker of Parliament was saying, that uh, initially uh, when, when this democracy started, it used to be the executive that uh, could uh, ad- uh, introduce bills, for instance. A lot has changed. Even uh, ordinary members of Parliament can now introduce bills, and those bills get debated and they become law. So it's quite an achievement. And, and again, I back to, uh, I'm sure President Jacob Zuma will touch on, on, on such achievements. Well, in part he will, uh, but, you know, those are the kind of achievements which, though, are important for uh, ordinary members of parliament and probably also for ordinary citizens. I mean, the reality is that the focus will, will be much more uh, on the kind of delivery uh, successes and much less on the kind of institutional tinkering which may have happened. Now, some of the institutional thinking is important, uh, but introducing members' bills is not one of them. Uh, the idea that the executive was the only uh, institution able to introduce laws uh, was somewhat tempered by what they call private members' bills. Now, that, of course, has taken root to a greater extent post-1994, and especially post-1999, but the number of private members' bills which have, in fact, uh, gone before the House are not that many. So it's an important innovation, but certainly not uh, the most striking. Mm. The real work, the real work, and I think the real beauty of the new parliament is that, you know, the plenary that we see is often a public show. Uh, the real work of Parliament actually happens in one of its 53 or 54 committees, uh, which is where the real debate, the real compromise, the real tinkering on legislation and on policy takes place. And I think there one would be surprised at the level of cooperation amongst different political parties, because also let's not lose sight of the fact that Parliament is itself a politicized institution. It must be, because that's what it is. It's the representative of the people. People are represented by political parties, and so therefore the politics translates into it. But the committees do work in a much more accommodating, consultative, uh, and consensual fashion. It doesn't mean that there isn't vigorous debate, but it's certainly much less uh, tense and much less conflictual than we see um, appearing in the House in general. So that's the real, I think, innovation. Uh, it's certainly much of the oversight that he was talking about also happens in committees. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that in the kind of electoral system we've got with a pure proportional representation, uh, with the overweening majority party, the numbers of the opposition are just far too small. And so their ability to ask probing questions uh, is limited, firstly, simply by the fact that they can't cover all 54 committees or 53 committees as effectively as a party like the ANC, because you just don't have the numbers. All right, and also this State of the Nation address comes at a time when we read of a whole lot of research and figures and surveys that are out there. One that I'm reading now saying that almost half of South Africans feel the government has been woefully inadequate in most policy areas. Of course, talking about a whole lot of issues, basic services such as water and electricity. We saw what happened in Madibeng, for instance, what's happening in Begistal and so on. What, what, what is your sense? in relation to what is going to happen tonight? Look, there will have to be an acknowledgement of of some of those problems. Uh, And many of those are not at the level of the national government. They're often at provincial government where there's inadequate oversight over the municipalities from provinces. And a real endemic crisis is in local government. But much of this is not only about the way in which the government works, it is about how ordinary political representatives are facilitating the work that all municipalities ought to be doing. So there'll have to be some acknowledgement of that, but I suspect what there'll be more of is an acknowledgement of the kind of successes, the extension of social welfare grants to roughly 15 million South Africans with very low levels of corruption in that system. 
Uh, of course, problems with the delivery of social housing and RDP housing, the quality, but you know, hardly one can quibble that in terms of scale, the delivery has in fact quite been, been quite rapid and by international standards has, has actually been better than what most other governments are able to do. So they'll obviously trump that success. And then the, with regard to the coverage of basic services, in fact, the ANC has done fairly well with regard to no fee-paying schools, almost universal coverage of primary education, and fairly decent coverage of access to water. Okay. We thank you very much, uh, Ibrahim Fakir, who is a, a political analyst, uh, an analyst, in fact, just uh, talking through the State of the Nation address that is expected at 7 o'clock tonight, right here on SAFM. We'll be covering it live uh, across many SABC uh, outputs uh, and channels. It's uh, 22 minutes uh, to 1. A combination of uh, over-regulation and improved technology is one of the reasons for the huge job losses being experienced in the financial services sector in South Africa. The latest financial services journal released by PwC uh, earlier this week says CEOs in the finance industry are calling for more stable regulations to open up business growth in the sector. Amina Akram reports. Tom Vinterbur is PwC financial services leader for Africa. He says banking and capital market leaders on the continent see technological changes as most likely to transform their business over the next five years. Vinterbur says this could be one of the reasons why there's a huge job losses in the banking sector. When you look at the technology spend of financial services companies in particular, they will spend money to make sure that they're more efficient to try and cut out manual processes that are there. And the manual processes would not specifically just be for cost saving. You know, that would be part of it. But, you know, with a manual process, you know, that's often more prone to, to error. So over time, one would expect that, you know, if, there, if, if there's no sort of almost real growth, the numbers must come down. According to an earlier PwC Global CEO survey released last year, CEOs in the country view over-regulation, exchange rate volatility and slowdown in economic growth as barriers to business. The latest journal also shows how the new regulatory equilibrium in Africa is affecting the financial services industry. We're then looking at the, you know, finding the new regulatory equilibrium in Africa and I think that is touching on what I said earlier on in terms of regulation and what is it that people want on the African continent. You know, we are engaging with people, the various territories. Uh, and, and the important thing is to see that they, you know, they are looking at improving what they do uh, and make sure that you have a solid regulatory set of requirements and, and legislation around that. Meanwhile, the report shows that the worldwide insurers are set for major changes in the next five years. Victor Muguto is insurance leader at PwC Africa. So the market and the insurers have accepted that they will change and migrate to a solvency two environment. At the same time, we've got IFRS 4, which has been long in the making. Um, that's also coming along, um, and we now know that it will be implemented uh, in 2018. So the first difference is you've got a timing difference between when you implement SAM in 2016 and when you implement IFRS 4 in 2018. So two years gap. Some of the requirements in terms of reporting, um, system changes, and so on, um, the second thing is, uh, where possible, trying to encourage insurers to early adopt um, IFRS 4, rather than waiting for 2018, bring it forward to 2016. The journal reports that despite a raising optimism in the banking and financial services sector, CEOs are worried about their own organization's prospects. China is seen as the most important global market over the coming years, followed by the United States. That report by Amina Akram. All right, Natalie Jimanos, better late than never, but South Africa needs an urgent, urgent weekend right now. Otherwise, Australia are running away with it. Yeah, definitely South Africa need a few more wickets. They've picked up three this morning, which means that two days in a row they've picked up three wickets in the morning session. And it is lunchtime right now on day two with Australia 374 for seven. It's, it looks a lot better than it did at the start, though, this morning. Australia was starting 297 for four. They had very well-set batsmen in Steve Smith and Sean Marsh. Sean Marsh overnight was 122. In the end, he made 148 of 288 balls with 15 fours. He was caught by Graham Smith of the bowling of Vernon Philander when the score was on 348. 
Just before that, Brad hadn't lost his wicket after facing just three deliveries and didn't score. He was LBW to Robin Peterson. After Brad Haddon did review it, it showed that it was still going to be hitting the stumps. And then Steve Smith, the first to go today, was caught by Alvira Peterson, standing at second slip of the bowling of Ryan McLaren for exactly 100 of 213 balls with 13 fours. He had just gone past that 100 mark for the fourth time in his career, and then he fell with a score at 331 for five after putting on a wonderful fifth wicket partnership with uh, Sean Marsh. They were 98 for four yesterday, and these two took it up to 331 for five. So at lunchtime right now, Australia 374 for seven. Mitchell Johnson will start after lunch at 28. Ryan Harris is on seven. And the good news about Morkel is he is back on the field. Natalie Chamanis for SFM Sport. Thank you very much, Natalie. Let's go through some of your SMSs and tweets. Very interesting ahead of uh, the State of the Nation address. Uh, this one uh, has got nothing to do with uh, this uh, event that is happening tonight, but we'll read it nonetheless. I live in the country, no dish, no contact number for TV, please help a country pumpkin there. And this one says, Midday Live, is there any point uh, in watching cricket on TV3? Uh, I guess SABC3. What is going on? Crackling, loss of picture every two minutes, just a, a crucial moment, uh, or just at crucial moments. It's unsigned, that one. This one, I would uh, prefer a state of the nation debate than a speech so other parties could question him. That's Colin Kwazun Natal. I cannot find SAFM on my DSTV. Can you explain to me why not? Oh, that's a, that's a serious problem there. Uh, unsigned SMS, but uh, I'm sure our station manager and uh, management will, will deal with that. You've got to find SAFM everywhere you go. Uh, Hagong is that uh, evening again uh, where the rich flaunt their wealth and uh, the poor we just envy. Nothing more. I do not expect a thing. That's Mlungisi in Taung. Would be nice to hear him say that uh, Jesus is returning because uh, then he could step down, says uh, Temba them. Uh, corruption and justifiable salaries at municipal level, that Peter uh, in uh, Lichtenberg. Let's turn now to your tweets. Uh, I vote for equality, saying that uh, uh, State of the Nation address is just an overrated fashion show. I can't wait for 7 p.m. so that I can see who's the best dressed puppet. And uh, Deb Zamashek is saying that I want to hear how uh, President Zuma is going to address the issue of uh, protest and uh, the police killing uh, innocent people. And uh, Sanjay Maharaj uh, at uh, Sanjay underscore ZN saying that uh, JZ must elaborate on how his government will create 6 million jobs and, be, and by when and uh, what uh, plans are in place should this not happen. And Shang Sibusiso saying that um, DA is governed by hallucinations that they will win Gauteng by marching to ANC offices. Viva ANC, viva there, says Shange Sibusiso. It's a, a quarter to one, and uh, time now to bring you your lunchtime market updates. Today's JSE report is brought to you by Telcom Business. Convergence. One solution. One service provider. Telcom Business. It's a good afternoon to Prandana Naidu of Sasfin Securities. Uh, Prandana, how are the markets looking today ahead of the State of the Nation address? Bongi, markets are mixed this morning as traders digest news from earlier in the week and are taking a bit of a breather before the release of fresh data from the U.S. and China. The Bank of England, in its quarterly inflation report, hiked its 2014 growth forecast for the nation, with investors now speculating an interest rate increase earlier than hoped. U.S. stocks ended slightly lower, snapping a four-day winning streak. Markets await a U.S. retail sales report due out later today, for which analysts are expecting no growth for the month of January. Amazon tumbled 3.5% amid concerns that the world's largest online retailer is threatened by the law of large numbers, making further revenue growth difficult given its size. On the local front, the JC also lacks direction, trading on the sidelines. Um, on a monthly basis, SA retail sales advanced 1.4% in December. Retailer Woolworths reported a 17% rise in first-half profits despite the slowdown in consumer spending. And Goldfields announced a 21% rise in gold production, even though they wrote off 7 billion rand worth of assets, mainly due to lower gold prices and higher discount rates. So taking a look at the local indices, we've got the gold index down 2.8%, resources 10 index down 0.4%, industrials 25 index up 0.1%, and the financials index down 0.5%. Overall, the market is pretty flat, down 60 points to 46,370. Stokes on the move today? 
British American Tobacco up 3.4% to 561 Rand and 34 cents. Comair up 2.5% to 3 Rand 74 and Raynet up 2.7% to 20.80 on the downside, we've got Goldfields on the back of their results down 5.7% to 40 rand and 70 cents. Wilson Bailey down 4.4% to 148 rand, and Willie's down 4.2% to 58 rand and 80 cents. And uh, your latest market indicators. Gold is trading at $1,289 an ounce, platinum $1,396 an ounce, Brent crude $107.24 per barrel, and finally the rand is at 11.06 to the dollar, 18.42 to the pound, and 15.13 to the euro. Prandana Naidu is with Sasfin Securities. This feature was brought to you by Telcom Business. Talk to Telcom Business about getting you on the journey to convergence with a tailor-made solution. Telcom Business. Marilyn, I need a non-automated, hand-operated ink dispenser for the objective of on-paper documentation. A pen, sir? Yes. That's the word I was looking for. Using several words when one will get the job done doesn't make sense. Neither does using several providers when you can get voice, mobile, fixed, data, cloud, and IT from one service provider. Call 10217, click telcom.co.za forward slash business, or visit a Telcom Direct store and get a tailor-made solution. Convergence. One solution, one service provider. Telcom Business. Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. It's uh, 11 and a half minutes uh, to one. Sheikh dwellers are up in arms of a court order obtained by the Durban municipality, which, which leans dangerously towards authorizing evictions without oversight from a court of law. Abathali Basem Jondolo, a national association for Sheikh dwellers, says the high court order is uh, deeply problematic. Senior constitutional court reporter Candice Klein has the details. The Durban municipality sought a high court order following threats of further unlawful invasions of municipal land. But Abashali argues that the municipality did not need a court order. All it had to do was to erect fences and or employ security guards. Abashali's lawyer, Stuart Wilson, says the high court order goes a step too far. What the order effectively does is make judges of security guards and uh, police officers. It puts the fox in charge of the hen house. It allows the security guards and the uh, police officers, all of whom are obviously in an adversarial relationship to anyone who is in occupation of the land or who might be wanting to occupy the land. It gives them the power to decide when the order does and doesn't apply. The Prevention of Illegal Eviction and Unlawful Occupation Act or PI, as it is commonly known, was raised consistently in arguments before the Constitutional Court. PI sets the court up as the final arbiter in eviction disputes. This means that nobody should be evicted from land without a court order. But Wilson argues that the High Court's order impermissibly gives the municipality the power to evict without a court order. And if one authorises the municipality and the police to prevent occupation, that's just a, a euphemism for eviction. The case was brought by the residents of Madala Village, an informal settlement near Lamontville, south of Durban. The land they live on falls within the land affected by the High Court order. They came to the Constitutional Court on a very narrow point, the High Court's refusal to hear their submissions against the permanent grant of the order. They insist the order could be misused to evict them from the land, even though it isn't supposed to apply to them. Acting Deputy Chief Justice De Suneke wanted to know from the community's lawyer, Lawrence Brewster, whether the court could ever delegate their powers. May a court say, listen, police, get to any of these properties. If you find people there, throw them out. No. Or are police always, without exception, obliged to approach a court in order to remove any person? from their home. But the municipality says that they understand the order only to be preventing land invasions. They say that it is used only in cases where people are found in the act of erecting shacks, but does not affect existing shack dwellers. The state conceded that there are problems with the framing of the order, but urged the Constitutional Court to simply send it back to the High Court for them to fix. The MEC for Human Settlements in KZN says the order does serve a legitimate purpose. The MEC's lawyer, Vinay Gaju. The mischief which the MEC set about trying to avoid was the further 
unlawful invasion of properties that had been set aside or earmarked for housing development and other public projects. Abahlali and the applicants have called on the court to scrap the order once and for all. The Constitutional Court has reserved judgment. And uh, that report by Candice Klein. It's uh, eight minutes uh, to one. Let's stay with this story now. And uh, let's go back to Professor Peter Alexander, who is uh, there at uh, the University of Johannesburg, Research Chair in Social Change at uh, the University of uh, Johannesburg. Uh, Prof, we spoke to you yesterday, uh, the moments after you released your your research, uh, which is uh, very interesting, really. Uh, And uh, we we couldn't finish our discussion. And uh, it was was, uh, really uh, very, very deep. Deep, deep, and we couldn't really get to the real issues. Now, let's get to the real issues. We spoke about the relationship between uh, service delivery protests and, and elections. And, and you said there is no direct relationship between the two. Please, let's just recap. Okay, well, let me just um, remind your listeners that the research is based upon uh, well over 2,000 protests that we have detailed information about and about 250 qualitative interviews that we've conducted all over the country in all of the different provinces. Now, based upon the quantitative research, we cannot see any um, general pattern um, that would link together elections and numbers of protests. Now, we've only got two, perhaps three elections to go on in the past. The key ones are obviously 2009 and 2011. Now, in 2009, there was an upsurge in protests after the elections, not before the elections, as some people think. And in 2011, there were quite a lot of protests before, and some during, and some after the election. So it's, it's not that we should necessarily expect to see more protests before the election or after the election. There are different uh, variables working here. What I find interesting is that we haven't uh, seen before these attacks on registration. That's something uh, new, although there have been moves towards uh, encouraging abstention from voting before. So, so there does seem to be some move um, towards uh, people separating themselves off from the normal election process because of the extent of their dissatisfaction. But, uh, Professor, why would communities go as far as uh, burning down their own facilities, such as clinics, libraries, when they are, they are protesting? Are they, are they prepared then to... Uh, sacrifice something to to gain what would be a, a bigger picture for them? I, I think that's precisely it. And sometimes people will say, well, Mandela was in, in jail for 27 years. It's, it's not a lot for us to uh, lose some of our facilities. And certainly if one thinks of other kinds of uh, protest organization, workers, for instance, uh, they lose their, their wages when they go on strike. Sometimes people go on hunger strike and they... Uh, and they begin to starve themselves. So in terms of a general understanding of social movements and political change, uh, this is not something which we should be surprised about. Mm. Uh, but but also, w- w- very interesting it, it would appear is that in some instances, it's just a pure resentment, you know, communities resenting uh, individuals, councillors, uh, they are MECs, and uh, they mobilise on that ticket and it becomes, it gets out of hand. Well, that certainly is the case in some instances. These uh, protests vary in character, the focus uh, varies, but often there is frustration with particular individuals, and usually for specific reasons, that they may have been dishonest, that they may have promised things which they didn't deliver. Uh, sometimes they say something particularly arrogant in, in a meeting, and that throws up uh, people's um, anger. So, so there certainly are those kinds of things going on. You know, there's a, there's a term that some academics use, a distinction that they make, mm. uh, between invented and invited spaces. And the idea here is that the invited spaces are the ones that are established usually by constitutional mechanisms, where people are expected to go along and express themselves to others who are in powerful positions. Uh, and what we're beginning to, to sense is the dissatisfaction with that way of uh, approaching democracy. So the people are beginning now to talk about uh, their own um, invented spaces. They're inventing places where they can begin to organize themselves, particularly in informal settings, but, but not only, where, for instance, in, in one place we came across recently, people talk about their parliament. Uh, and we've heard that uh, in the past as well. So, so people are developing their own parliaments, their own ways of organizing things, 
uh, and this is separate from what the government is doing. So that if we're to have a proper conversation between uh, the state and the people, we've got to get away from this insistence uh, that communities must have to uh, present their arguments uh, to the, through the official channels. That's not going to do the job anymore. There's been a breach of trust between government and the people. And going forward, how should then leadership respond to this? I mean, one newspaper headline today uh, reads, unresponsive state to blame for violence. And, and really going forward, government will be looking at your research and many other papers in front of them and their own, and they will say, this is how we're going to do it. But how? Look, I think it's very difficult for the government because what we are describing and have been describing over the past five years amounts to a rebellion of the poor. The people who are involved in these protests come from poorer communities. By and large, they're people who are not employed um, and their living standards are, are very low. So to the extent that it is a rebellion of the poor, it's something which the government is going to have to address by means of macroeconomic change um, on a very significant scale. And I don't think what they're proposing at the moment is, is, is designed to address the extent of those problems. I, I was reading a comment by one of the political advisers uh, to the president um, who complains about market fundamentalism and trying to blame, I suppose, uh, capitalists in South Africa for the extent of the gap between uh, the, the rich and powerful and, and the poor. Now, my question then is, what's the government going to do about this market fundamentalism? I mean, if that's the problem, then they've got to address the problem and they have to address market fundamentalism by means of some kind of fundamental political change. But having said this, um, there are all sorts of much smaller things that the government could be doing to uh, perhaps reduce the level of protest action and address the problems that, that, that people are immediately facing. Okay. You see, uh, can I just make one or two? Yes, please. please. Suggestions? Okay, I'll do it quickly. You see, in the case of Kagiso, for instance, uh, people were up in arms because a mining company started blasting and they got cracks in their houses, there was dust all over the place and people were frightened. Now, I can't see why the minister didn't step in immediately and stop the blasting. Eventually, the blasting has been stopped by court action, but because there wasn't immediate intervention, we have a massive protest. So these are the little examples that one can provide from all over the country that would reduce the level of protest action going on. All right, we thank you very much, uh, Professor Peter Alexander, who is uh, the chair of uh, the South African Research in Social Change at the University of uh, Johannesburg. And Jablan Zulu saying that uh, it's another redundant uh, speech, no fruit to reap thereof. Action speaks louder than empty promises. That's uh, in correction of the State of the Nation address. Thanks to Mabubuloga and Buntle Mutswaswe, and also Wandile Makasana, who's our technical producer, Busi Chan, and Obrisachie, our executive producers. My name is Bongikwa. Let's do it again tomorrow for your Friday edition of Midday Live. Bye-bye.